You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, The Driven, the EV Focus, The Driven and One Step Off The Grid. And normally joining me at this time is ITK analyst uh, David Leach, but um, he's not with us at the start of the show, but he'll be joining us um, towards the end of the show to discuss the week's news. But it's my great pleasure to um, welcome to the podcast Jai Thomas. He is the coordinator of energy from Western Australia and we have him on board because there's some really interesting things happening on the other side of the continent. Um, All the miners and all the industries have decided to go green and it seems the government wants to go green with them. So I think we've kind of seen a what one could describe as a laggard in the renewable energy transition to being one of the uh, one of the front runners I think it's going to happen anyway um, Jai um, welcome to the podcast yeah thanks for having me Giles uh, long time listener first time caller so pleased to be here <laughs> <laughs> well look no it's great to have you on board look I have found Western Australia pretty fascinating um, one um, look I, I keep on telling this um, I keep on telling this uh, anecdote. I went over to Western Australia. I actually did my cadetship in West Australia with a West Australian um, about 50 years ago now, almost 50 years ago now. And I went back in 2012 for the opening of the um, Greenoff River um, solar farm, the first one in Australia. And the energy minister at the time, whose name escapes me, um, said he hoped he'd never opened another solar farm again. And he didn't. But um, but Western Australia didn't build much either. But um, now it's um, it's building an awful lot. Um, a lot has happened over the last couple of years to really change the focus and sort of um, make the government and the industry just think differently about this green energy transition. What's happened? Yeah, thanks, Giles. It's uh, it's been uh, an exciting time here, particularly over the last four or so years. Um, so you know, my role as coordinator of energy, I oversee the energy supply arrangements across our variety of regimes, our southwest power system, northwest power system, and, um, and the arrangements that service things like the, the microgrids and the off-grid sites that we have, uh, which I'll happily talk to you about. I think the main, uh, you know, the main change has been driven by, um, I guess, uh, uh, government appetite to really see the energy transition happen. We have Minister Bill Johnston, um, a really passionate and engaged minister, a reforming minister, and uh, and also we had some you know looming challenges like uh, uh, the reality is our, our southwest power system and our northwest power system they're not interconnected to each other they're not interconnected to any other state so things like uh, uh, excess rooftop solar for example and, and and the minimum demand challenge that can come um, in spring and autumn those are the kinds of things that, that really drove. Uh, the establishment of our energy transformation strategy and you know at its heart it's really about you know transitioning our power systems to really high renewable power systems but also dealing with all the all of those challenges along the way but yeah but I, I, so, look it's interesting because and you mentioned the fact that they're not they're not connected so um you know i think you've described them as the world's biggest microgrids and things like that and i think somebody actually suggested well maybe australia as an island is probably the world's biggest microgrid. Yeah. <laughs> but i guess how far, how far you take it but i mean it is quite unique and you know, it's r- relatively small gr- grid you know four gigawatts of maximum compa- um maximum demand um but look i mean look there's something else that seems to have happened i mean you know from from an observer it seems to us looking in when you're describing about minimum demand and all those sort of things and all the rooftop solar, it does seem to have flipped from, oh, this is really hard to do. We've got to kind of either sort of start down or manage it to, my God, you know, we've got so much opportunity here because, um, you know, this WA demand forecast that you actually put out just a few months ago is quite extraordinary. I mean, you're, you're talking about a four gigawatt grid 
and I can't quite remember how big the Northwest interconnected system is, but it's um, you know it's not. I doubt if it's more than a gigawatt. Um, and you're talking about having 50 gigawatts of wind and solar for all the new industry that's sort of coming in. Um, I mean, I guess this has just been driven by the fact that you're talking about the government being quite proactive. I think industry has also realised that um, you know demand for their products internationally is for low carbon. Co- Products. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Giles. I mean, um, you know, just to set the scene, as you say, uh, we peak at about four gigawatts peak demand, you know, on a really hot summer's day at the moment, that's residential air conditioner driven. Um, in the future, though, you know, uh, we do see that transition to high industrial loads. Uh, we're at about 34% renewable energy now. That's roughly half, you know, wind farms north of Perth um, and roughly half rooftop solar. Um, and so, you know, we definitely have existing challenges in managing the power system at 34% and growing renewable share, but uh, also recognising that um, that the future is, you know, green electrons um, and industry have their decarbonisation commitments. Uh, 2022 was certainly the year of the decarb commitment. Um, 2023 the year, is the year of working out how, to, how the hell to get that done. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the Swiss demand assessment that we did, which is, like our our mini version of an integrated system plan, um, it really highlighted that uh, that the forecast, in a pragmatic sense, we didn't stack every you know hydrogen media statement on top of each other, but in a pragmatic sense, um, you know we forecast um, or, or outlook for around um, you know thirteen gigawatts uh, peak demand, um, so a threefold increase in in current uh, in current levels, uh, and that being serviced by. So that's by 2030, sorry. That's by 2040, that is. 2040, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. And that then being serviced by around 50 gigawatts of, of new renewables and storage and gas playing a, a, a firming role in there too. Um, so, you know, the, the reality is that will that will need to be delivered with a, a fair bit of transmission investment um, as well as, you know, making sure our market and, um, and other sort of settings are, are all conducive to, uh, to investment in the renewables and storage that we need. And there's some interesting things happening. We'll get back to, this, to, to the Swiss and some of your issues down there, but let's sort of, sort of pop up to the north of the state now and go to the Northwest Interconnected System. This is kind of this, you know, we've got Rio, Rio Tinto, um, BHP, Fortescue, um, Hancock's Mob, um, Gina, Gina Reinhardt's Mob, sorry, Hancock um, Prospecting. Um, um, they've, a lot of them have got their own networks. Um, kind of like a feudal system, and they've all kind of got together with the network owners and the local d- the utilities and the government and decided, well, okay, well, let's pull our resources because basically we want to go. I mean, it's incredibly, it's all it's all gas and diesel now. I mean, I think there's one solar farm that's been built up there, um, but they just want to go basically create this massive renewable hub. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, uh, so I think um, that's another, you know, really good example, I guess, of, of coordinating across, you know, government and industry, and and really outlining a, a vision for the future, and then, you know, building momentum behind uh, behind that vision. The Pilbara's history is one of linear infrastructure. Um, in an electricity network sense, there's some uh, pretty weak electrical interconnection um, amongst the sort of five, um, you know, pieces of network that comprise the uh, the Northwest interconnected system. Um, and you know, histo- history shows that we've got rail lines running next to each other up there um, and and really if there's one thing that um, that can unite industry it's it's uh, it's the decarbonization challenge and the recognition that you know to deliver green electrons to deliver um, the step change in um, electricity demand um, as industry electrifies um, and then uh, you know make that supply renewable it really is going to rely on um, common user infrastructure and reaching in um, to the interior of the Pilbara and ex- extracting the, you know, the good wind resource that's in there um, and essentially bringing it back for industry. But the, that'll only work uh, with a common user vision and a common user approach because um, you just simply couldn't hope to deliver the, the megawatts or gigawatts required to, um, uh, to deliver on industry decarbonisation if each and every player went it, went it alone. So, mm. uh, you so, know... So so yeah. how did they get together then? I mean, did, did, sure. did, did, did someone drive it or was this yeah. a, a, a common awakening? <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of things going on at once and ultimately we, you know, government uh, uh, around two years ago implemented a light-handed regulatory arrangement um, to really kind of have the first step into coordination in the Pilbara. 
Um, about 12 months ago, uh, Minister Johnston instigated a Pilbara Industry Roundtable and, and that was the next main vehicle for driving the agenda forward where industry was able to really uh, hone in on that uh, that proposition that um, that we've got to make sure, uh, you know, that common user infrastructure is at the heart of this, um, really hone in on First Nations opportunities and there's some really fantastic examples of, um, you know, Aboriginal corporations um, getting involved in renewables projects and them being something that can can really give uh, give an ongoing equity and, and revenue stream to um, to First Nations communities in the Pilbara. So, you know, those sorts of things really being at the heart of the conversation uh, for where the Pilbara needs to go. Uh, but again, uh, really good buy-in from, you know, the multinationals that you mentioned um, and uh, and the future of the Pilbara being, um, being a shared infrastructure future. So who's driving this then? Is it the corporates or is it the government or is it kind of both together? Uh, I think this is an area where, you know, government really has to coordinate. Um, but uh, but you know, with uh, with industry uh, really you know inputting to that, the reality is they do have decarbonisation targets. There are a lot of federal government safeguard mechanism sites up there too. Um, so these things, um, you know, the game has changed when it comes to to their commitment to going going renewable. And a lot of them are looking to their um, industrial processes, their haul trucks, um, their other operations, and 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 really working out how they're going to decarbonise them. And you know, I often say. Uh, electrification is a gateway drug to decarbonisation, and uh, and the reality is, uh, a lot of these operations will electrify, including the whole trucks, um, and then they'll need to be serviced by green electrons. So it really is joint momentum, um, and then you know the First Nations opportunities um, uh, are there too, and and there are some really good uh, body corporates up in the Pilbara. Um, there's 35 First Nations groups in the Pilbara region, um, and we really want to engage with them all. Um, but ultimately uh, giving the, the right set of structures, the right set of capability building to help them uh, be a part of the future too is a, is a core focus. So there's a lot going on and, and it has relied on sort of government coordination and, and, uh, and you know, Mr Johnston at the helm of that. Um, but ultimately uh, there is a good buy-in for that common vision and, and it's a, it's a sh- sort of shared, shared vision at this point. Okay, let's come back down to the Southwest Internet Connected System, which is the main grid around Perth in the southwest of the state. Um, you mentioned before um, minimum load. I mean, that's been the major concern, I guess. Um, it's kind of flipped from a few years ago. It was what you, what do you do in peak demand when everyone throws on the air conditioners? Then it became, oh, what happens in the springtime when people haven't got their air conditioners on, but they've got a lot of solar happening and they're pushing sort of demand levels down. And because you are this, this island grid, um, you're kind of going, oh, gee, um, what do we do about sort of system strength and and inertia. So you, um, we're coming into spring. I noticed that earlier this week you had a record output of rooftop solar. I think it was 1,800 and something megawatts. Um, wasn't a record share. That's up to around 74%. Um, what are the plans? What are you doing? Yeah, so it's uh, it's funny you say, you know, it used to be uh, weekday summer afternoons that stress power system operators. Now it's perfect days that stress them out, you know, 23 degrees in spring and autumn. Uh, some Sundays particularly uh, where, you know, commercial loads are down, um, it's not hot enough to turn uh, your air conditioner on, it's not cold enough to turn your heater on, um, and we have around two and a half gigawatts of rooftop solar installed. Um, and like I said, our peak demand in summer is about four gigawatts, but um, but our, our average demand will be much lower than that. And so, um, you know, we've got this concept of a minimum demand threshold. It's not one single number that, you know, uh, things uh, go bad once you once you hit, it, it'll always depend on what's going on in the power system, what loads are, are up and going. But uh, on or around 600 megawatts is where, you know, we are at a, at a point where if something something goes wrong in the power system, the, the physics, you know, can't really respond in time. So, uh, so, you know, the spring and autumn periods have a real low load management focus for us. Um, we've got uh, our low load batting order, as we call it, and we uh, we ultimately. Uh, <laughs> so so the, the, this was the first ones out of the grid when the uh, wind demand goes low. So um, let me guess, it's the uh, large scale wind and solar farms that go first. Yeah, I mean, there's things that happen before that, and of course there are industrial loads. We've now got a first um, utility scale battery in there, so the situation's changing all the time. Um, we also, uh, as you would know, um, have our a rooftop solar, you know, emergency solar management button that we call it. Um, that's uh, that's our capability to switch off rooftop solar. That's the very bottom of the batting order. Uh, we haven't had to use it yet 
uh, we require this capability. You've also, yeah, hang yeah. on, but you, you've also got this project Symphony, haven't you? Which is supposed to be sort of, you know, isn't that supposed to be like the sophisticated approach to sort of managing rooftop solar? Absolutely. So in, uh, you know, 2020, we released our DER roadmap, which really paints a vision for uh, coordinated, you know, um, and, uh, and visible DER as opposed to uncoordinated and somewhat invisible DER. Um, and the whole point there is to, is to uh, you know, realise a future where, you know, aggregated DER can, can be rewarded for the services it can provide in the market um, and not just, you know, re, I guess, uh, in, a, uh, um, in a rather unsophisticated manner, sw- switched on or switched off, um, depending on what the system needs. So Project mm-hmm. Symphony is our sort of real-world testbed to, to get the um, technology right, to get the rules right, to allow for aggregated DER to sort of be a market okay. participant, um, and, uh, and we're progressing those reforms. We're not quite there yet. We've had some aggregated DER participate in some services in the energy markets, so some early successes through Project Symphony and, and some of the, uh, the service requests that AEMO does for us here. Um, but ultimately, that longer-term vision we're still hon- honing in on in terms of uh, right. you know, the, the coordinated DER management approach. So- so you've still got a big red button. What does that big red button look like? Does it sort of is it sort of gigantic thing on the wall that someone hits with a big hammer or something like that? Like, yeah. or is it just like a little red button on the table that someone pushes? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's coordinated through you know AEMO Western Power as the distribution network and and Synergy as you know the government-owned monopoly retailer. So you know we do have the benefit of of dealing with sort of single parties in in this process. It's uh, it's allowed us to proceed with some simplicity um, and ultimately we required that functionality for newly installed inverters uh, from from February last year um, and so that fleet of of devices has built up you know over the subsequent 18 months um, oh okay so, so that's yeah. just that's sort of inverters that you can actually control remotely you don't have to press yeah. you don't really have to press the big red button and just sort of cut people off and not expecting no, no, it but no. I mean, yeah no, okay no okay. it all runs through yeah. a, a control platform and um, you know, it's, it's a lot like the, the virtual power plan arrangements um, in, a, in Project Symphony and, and also on the east coast of the country. So, so, so run through that batting order again then. So you've got like load management, um, industrial loads, I presume you just sort of kind of switch them on if, if, if demand's looking low. You've, you've now got, a, you've got your first big battery that you can yep. do that with. Um, then I'd imagine you've got things like um, making sure that spinning machines is, are available in the background and then presumably just winding back large-scale renewables. And then if you really have to, you kind of you kind of thump that red button for rooftop solar or parts thereof. Exactly, and 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 that that's pretty much it. And ultimately, um, you know, the 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 rooftop solar um, you know curtailment would be uh, a last gas measure before you know something even worse happens. So, you know, these are all in place to keep you know uh, the electricity system flowing. Um, like I said, we haven't had to use it yet. We hope to not have to use it uh, this spring. And and also the future of electrification. Um, new batteries coming into our system and then um, electric vehicles eventually too. It's probably yeah. a medium term problem, you know, next three to four years. But as as we get some much bigger industrial loads and that sort of uh, belly of the duck, you know, really lifts up, um, then ultimately we hope to to not have to panic as much in uh, in, in spring and autumn in, in, say, the latter part of this decade. So you don't want to kill the duck, you just want to sort of reduce the size of its belly. Um, yeah, yeah, turn it into a platypus. Turn it into a platypus. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, it's interesting there because you mentioned the batteries. You've actually sort of commissioned um, or given contracts, I don't know whether it's you or EMO or who it yeah. is exactly, um, yeah. two big contracts, I think one with... Um, um, is it the Linter, I think, got a big battery here? And you've got the sure, Neo, sure, Neo yeah. N1. So there's two four-hour yeah. batteries, and they're designed specifically, or, or, or they're mandated, this contract is specifically just soak up as much solar as you can in the middle of the day, and then just put it back in the grid in the evening. So between, I can't remember, is it like 10 or 2 o'clock in the, in, in the middle of the day, and then 5 yep. to 9 in the evening. And But but those contracts are only for a couple of years. So you, as you just said, it's, it's kind of like a, you've seen this problem in interim thing, and then you just imagine that sort of the scale of electrification will actually sort of fill that gap kind of organically if that's the word yeah yeah Yeah, so we have a number of batteries i'll run through them in a minute um in the in the process and in the pipeline the reality is um that was a really useful application of our market rules here we have this fantastic title it's called non-co-optimized essential system services it's something that aemo can use to really procure services they need to keep the power system 
stable in a high <laughs> renewable environment. Um, and to, and to confuse the hell out of people who don't understand yeah. what it means. <laughs> it's a Swiss army knife for the Swiss. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's something that was utilised in that short-term nature. But we also have our capacity mechanism and our planning criteria that utilises, you know, a capacity mechanism as opposed to the energy-only market of the East Coast. Um, so we have that ongoing, you know, planning uh, or peak demand certainty um, in terms of, um, you know, these these batteries being being part of the peak demand solution over the rest of the decade. Whilst the contract here was for two years, we um, we require them to then go into the the capacity process that we have um, and be a standardised part of our our capacity procurements. Okay. Um, so, so I'll just I'll just give you a bit more background on that. So we uh, have a planning criteria that. Um, that essentially values unserved energy, but also a one in 10 year peak demand event um, plus a reserve margin. Um, and typically the, the limb of the planning criteria that um, drives our, our planning forecast is the peak demand event rather than the unserved energy limb um, that the NEM would be familiar with. Um, and so what that means is AEMO three years out um, of, of any given capacity year and our capacity years are one October to one October. Um, they do a uh, a reserve capacity target forecast, and they essentially uh, make sure they have enough capacity um, in that process three years out, um, uh, gliding towards that, um, that 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 summer um, to uh, to meet that peak demand forecast or that uh, that capacity target. So that happens each and every year, um, and the, uh, our energy statement, electricity statement of opportunities, is the thing that outlines what the capacity target is, um, mm. and then from there um, the process just keeps going. Um, in this case, um, you know, AEMO recognised that we needed some more capacity at peak, recognised we also had a, had a minimum demand issue, so bundled those things together and, and sort of neatly solved the problem. Um, government's role in that was to set the rules, so we, uh, we set a planning criteria for AEMO um, that requires them to consider risk in the planning, uh, uh, risk in the planning process. So it's not just an N-1 reserve margin, it's, a, it's an assessment of risk and, as you'd know, Giles, uh, the you know, fuel-based risks, things like, you know, digging coal out of the ground or or, uh, or an ageing, you know, thermal generator fleet means EMO can factor in more risk in um, in setting that planning margin and, and and ultimately setting that capacity target. So those sorts of things that have underpinned the, the battery investments that we have. We've had Synergy's first battery in Quinana go live. Um, they're currently building a second battery at Quinana. Uh, we've had Neo and at Collie, 200 megawatts, 800 megawatt watt hours contract for October 2024, we've had a linter, um, 100 megawatts, 200 megawatt hours. Um, and there's some demand response in there too, NL providing 120 megawatts demand response for October 2024 too. So uh, a lot of moving parts. Um, another big collie battery from Synergy in in the following year, 500 megawatts, 2,000 megawatt hours there too. Um, so, you know, the battery investments are coming. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be like you're able to sort of move with a bit of alacrity. Is that the fact that you don't have an AEMC and an AER, like the regulator and the yeah. market commission sort of setting rules and sort of um, taking forever to sort of pontificate upon um, returns and things like that? You can just do things? Yeah, um, you know, we have uh, sovereignty over our rule book and, um, and that's been very useful as we've gone through this energy transformation, you know, the reality is, and we have... Minister Johnston is a reforming minister as well, so he's really engaged on the subject matter. And ultimately, um, you know, the the industry here, uh, Perth's a pretty small town in the end, and and they all really buy into the to the to the future. And so all of our reforms, it's an ongoing thing, but we re- get really good support from the local industry and mm. progressing reforms. And we find we're able to to progress quite quickly on on uh, on any market rules changes that are that are identified yeah. as needed to to further progress the vision so but, but you actually well. yeah you actually changed the market market rules in and you modify that capacity mechanism quite quite dramatically i think i mean one of my favorite stories and another one of these um things i keep on repeating all the time um there was a um i think there's like a sort of a diesel um peaking plant out at meriden um it's been sitting there for 10 years getting into sort of very handsome capacity payments but it's never actually been switched on to do anything useful um apart from just sort of you know shaking off the cobwebs but you're actually sort of redesigning the capacity market uh, yeah you're sort of because you're kind of a, and, and my understanding is that there's a couple of, a couple of different things one is the role that batteries can play um but two is also recognition that you can't always count on coal for instance being there um yeah for, for sure so we love our capacity mechanism we're not going to discard it anytime soon um, but we do need to make sure it keeps delivering as we go you know more and more renewable and 
And so we reward capacity, um, uh, but we need to make sure that we're reward, rewarding capacity that can perform. So if a generator's sort of switched off at lunchtime and, and maybe unable to, to perform at peak because it simply can't ramp that quick, um, then, then ultimately, you know, we should be reflecting that in the reward that they get through the capacity mechanism. So, uh, so we've been reviewing our capacity mechanism and, and, uh, and we'll be bringing rules forward shortly to really hone in on, um, on flexibility and the ability to ramp quickly to meet evening peak um, as essentially a, uh, uh, an extra um, kicker in the uh, in the capacity payment process. So, so um, is this the death of baseload? Uh, yeah, we you know we've definitely fallen behind the concept that we've long moved on from you know baseload and peaking, and now into renewables and firming as the uh, as the thing we build the power system around. Okay, and it's interesting too, just going back to the, your sovereignty over your decisions and things like that, and the fact that everything's state-owned. I mean, we've seen in New South Wales and in other states, but particularly New South Wales, the great debate over Araring, um, and um, you know whether that sort of you know the biggest coal generator in the country should be kept on. I mean, in in some ways, I think Origin have pulled a bit of a swifty here by sort of you know making up a date and um, they can't bring it forward, but they can certainly delay it. But then they can delay it and try and get payments from the government um, to sort of meet their costs or whatever. Um, just a couple of months ago, you decided, well, we see a little gap there. So one of the the Muja um, power stations was supposed to close and we'll just keep one open in reserve just for an extra summer. And you just do that because <laughs> yes, it's your decision. Sure. You don't have to you don't have to negotiate anyone with anyone yeah. and sort of go through all this sort of endless sort of, you know, media sort of conjecture and sort of people sort of throwing things at each other in Parliament House and stuff like that. You just go, oh, we'll just keep that open for another summer and that should be fine. Yeah, so as you say, government here owns um, about eighty percent of the coal-fired generation um, that 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 is in the southwest power system. Um, you know, the first of the units was retired uh, last year, so so that went out two hundred megawatts out. Um, but uh, uh, government was quite clear when they announced the uh, the retirements through to twenty twenty nine that twenty twenty nine would be the hard end. That it had to move some moving parts in there. Um, it would. Uh, in this case, as I said, we've got those batteries. They're contracted to turn up uh, for one October. Um, but uh, but then having the coal unit go out that that same day, you know, it just made sense to not line those two dates up and and kind of rely on on hope and promise. Um, when you know, as you said, you could um, just move it out that six months, make sure it's available for summer. I think Penny Sharp last week mentioned construction risks, so we mitigate some of the construction risk around those batteries because we all know supply chains um, are pretty congested globally at the moment. So I'm not saying. Or suggesting for a moment that, that those entities won't deliver, um, but just making sure just that in case, uh, that yeah. in all the moving parts that we have, um, that we're not relying on, on you know, uh, everything happening essentially on the same day, um, mm. and then uh, and then having a bad outcome. We've got uh, you know many horses in the race. The cavalry is coming, but um, but let's uh, let's make sure we're we're in a secure position through what is you know our, still our biggest challenge: peak demand through through summer. Okay. And look, I mean, I do hear from the wind and solar farm developers, I mean, they have gotten frustrated um, um, the um, inability. I mean, I guess we've seen a bit of a slowdown in the number of sort of new big projects connecting to the grid. And of course, you've now got this sort of demand forecast where you're going to have to sort of, um, you know, you're tripling demand. So presumably, a lot of that's going to have to change. But I, I mean, yeah. what do you need? I mean, can you open up the network before you build more transmission? Um, what's sure, your sure. kind of reading of the situation here? I mean, it's interesting in New South Wales, we're going to think, oh, we, we can't have, you know, we can't have transition without transmission and other people are putting their hand up and going, well, actually, we kind of could because there's a lot of distributed network capacity that we haven't, um, we haven't, uh, we haven't touched yet and we probably didn't even know was there. Um, there's a lot of other things we can do in the meantime. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we're no different. We will rely on, on transmission upgrades to get the volume of renewables we need. Um, a lot of our wind is in the north, um, north of Perth and you know, that's a reasonably constrained part of the network now. Um, so we absolutely recognise that, you know, the future will require transmission build. The Swiss demand assessment contemplates sort of 4,000 kilometres of, of new transmission needed to deliver that 50 gigawatts that we spoke about. Um, our current footprint of the Swiss is about 8,000 kilometres of transmission. Um, so, you know, it has to increase rapidly. Uh, we are, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks about to release the sort of next stage in the process of of essentially firming up that stage one transmission build and that'll be sort of an EOI for industry to really help um, finalise and hone in on the um, on the near-term transmission needs um, for realistic sort of near-term projects. So we do have a few wind farms connecting in the short term. We've got 
um, some spare capacity in the southwest and, and southeast that's being utilised. So, for example, Anala connecting their Flat Rocks wind farm um, that uh, in early in the new year. That's a that's a good success story. Um, you know where BHP Nickel West are essentially contracting with renewables providers uh, from around the southwest um, to underpin you know the greening of their operations. Um, so that's something um, that's you know we highlight as as really where industry and the uh, and the arrangements that we have working harmoniously to deliver good outcomes. But we absolutely recognise we need more transmission um, to uh, to deliver this. And we also need to do the social licence engagement um, that everyone else is is, uh, is doing um, and really do it well. We have probably the benefit of learning from others um, as we commence that journey as well. Um, and we have some existing transmission corridors that will that will bolster in this as well. So it's all ahead of us. There's absolutely a lot of work to do in the transmission space, but, um, but where, you know, this year has been the year of planning for, for what that looks like. Mm. And look, we've talked about some of the grids. We talked about the grid in the north and we looked at the grid in the south, but WA is a big, big uh, state and you've got a lot of things which are off-grid. Um, now, Esperance has been an interesting example because um, 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 I remember um, I remember um, staying in Esperance for a couple of weeks um, back in the 1970s. Um, haven't been back there since, actually. But look, um, yeah. interesting uh, thing happened. We, we actually wrote it up um, in um, um, on our switched on um subsection which sort of focuses on electrification um, basically the sort of the, the, the gas supply decided to pack up and get out of town and um and in a year it was it was replaced yeah yeah esperance is a beautiful town you know south coast it, it can get pretty cold down there it's a winter peaking town which is unique for western australia um and and as you said yeah there's about 400 you know um residential and small business some one or two larger business gas connections in town um the gas company that was servicing uh, the town basically, you know, uh, said the, the gas distribution network is a is a loss maker. So uh, so we're packing up and, and moving out. And, you know, for, for us, um, that government really took on the challenge of, of transitioning the town, about 400 connections um, that, that really needed to, um, you know, go through that, that process of working out, well, for each and every connection point, what does transition look like? And I think it's an excellent case study in, you know, the death of a small gas distribution network and truly what it takes to electrify, you know, homes and, and businesses in a retrofitting sense. Um, it's probably a whole different uh, ball game. you know, going uh, all electric in new developments and, and we've seen movement in many states on that. But, um, but the retrofitting equation, I think there is so much to be learnt from Esperance and I know Steph Unwin, the Horizon Power CEO, was on your, uh, your sister podcast um, explaining this, but I think it's a really good example of, um, of of the lessons that need to be learnt, the uh, the engagement with the community that's required. And this is just for four hundred customers, no no less, um, to really get their buy in um, and make sure that the the transition in this case for twelve for twelve months um, was done smoothly. Mm. And what are the plans for electrification then in the rest of the grid, like the southwestern um, southwest interconnected system? Um, I mean, if you go back sort of twenty or thirty years, Perth was actually a, a leader in solar hot water, and then there was kind mm. of like a different a gas mandate came in, and all of a sudden everyone got gas um, gas gas fired um, hot water systems. Um, I presume yeah. now you're going to go you go back to electric. Yeah, I mean, there's no uh, plans to to mandate it, um, but you'll find it's happening anyway. Um, you know, new developments. Um, you know, they have to weigh up their their infrastructure costs, and ultimately, um, it makes sense to have you know one set of fixed charges rather than two. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's happening quite organically, and uh, and particularly for for new developments. Um, and in some parts of our state, you know, um, they are microgrids. Horizon Power has. 38 off, you know, off-grid towns. Esperance is one of them. Exmouth, Carnarvon, Broome, um, you know, those those towns are already typically mostly electric, and um, and uh, and they also have 170 remote Aboriginal communities, which they which they service, and they do an incredible job there. So, you know, the uh, the arrangements are different depending on where you are in the state, but uh, but ultimately, uh, uh, you know, the 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 electrification future is is probably one more so for industry. Um, you know, we see uh, a lot of our heavy industry considering their options at the moment. Um, as we plot the future of that transmission build, um, what uh, what it will take for them to, you know, turn their 
their industrial process, if gas is their feedstock or some other input um, into an electric, you know, operation, and 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 also the the need for for the renewables to uh, to underpin that and, and where they'll come from. Mm. We do have a reasonably large grid. It's not like the NEM where you know you can get um, wind from Queensland or South Australia, um, but we do have some diversity in the southwest um, that can help make sure that. Uh, that the green electrons can be there when uh, when industry needs them. Well, is there any thought about sort of you know stringing a line across the Nullarbor to the uh, to uh, to the eastern states? Maybe help them out with some sort of late evening solar or sort of p- putting a line up north to the Pilbara. Yeah, we'd have to do our own referendum on daylight savings again just to maximise benefit there. But um, but no, the reality is uh, it's often something floated. Uh, you know, the costs would be huge. The contingency that you need to run to cover it going down would be even bigger. But um, but yeah, it's uh, uh, you know, it's something that uh, isn't in our long-term planning future. That's for sure. <laughs> but what about some of these other huge renewable projects? You know, there's like the Asian Australian Renewable Energy Hub, 26 gigawatts or whatever it is, up in the Pilbara. Um, you know, there's I think there's a couple down. There's another one, the Western one, um, north of Esperance, 50 gigawatts. And I think Andrew Forrest has been playing around with some ideas and talking to farmers down there. I mean, do you get um, approached about that? I mean, how do you sort of see that? I mean, does that play into the way you're thinking about planning the grid, or 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 are they just kind of doing their own thing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, though, those projects are mega projects, and and there's a lot that needs to be, and a lot of ducks that need to be lined up for them to to progress. And um, and there is a lot of support from from government to to see that those projects proceed. And we do have things like uh, uh, government investing in a green approvals unit here in in one of our government agencies to help those projects. You know, find a pathway through. The reality is. Um, a lot of them are honing in more so on on domestic supply and, and helping industry with their transition locally rather than, say, you know, uh, major export. And uh, we've got a couple of really good uh, First Nations projects that uh, that are progressing at, you know, some something, uh, and it sounds strange, but sort of mid-range scale. So, you know, the Yinjibani Energy Project uh, is about three gigawatts wind, solar and storage, um, partnering with, um, with ASIN, the renewables developer there and, and then we have the east kimberley clean energy project which i think we're on a, the podcast a few weeks ago where the mg corporation no, uh, yeah yeah yep, pollination group to do a thousand megawatt solar farm so you know those sort of medium scale projects are probably from my perspective mm. uh, even more exciting yeah. um, particularly given the um the first nations uh, equity partnerships that um that they're progressing the preferred contracting arrangements for first nations businesses all of those things that um really can um can hone in on uh on, on the benefits of energy transition um, that can be uh, that can be provided to First Nations yeah. communities. So look, just in summary, then I mean it, it's quite remarkable what's happening in WA. So you've got your your, your coal-fired power stations basically being phased out by the end of the decade. The government is committed to closing the last of its own uh, coal generators, and the other privately owned one isn't exactly in great financial health and struggles to even source any coal. So um, that's probably gone by the end of the decade. So you've got coal going out of the system. You've got new batteries coming in. You've got a lot of rooftop solar. You've got um, you've just got this sort of massive demand plan. Um, you seem to be, have a positive view of electric vehicles and the way that they can contribute to the grid. I mean, it's 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 kind of it kind of feels like sort of the cutting edge of you know of of this this is kind of the future, guys. And 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 um, um, because you can make your own decisions, um, yeah. you can actually do it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know it's an exciting time. Uh, energy transition is bloody hard too. I think uh, you know we had um, you know a quarter of our of our thermal generator fleet out for most of June and 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 the challenges that were brought brought there. So you know each and every day there's a there's a new challenge, low load, peak demand, whatever it is. Um, but absolutely, uh, you know the the state of Western Australia is committed to 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 decarbonising our industry and, and and our electricity supply. I think uh, uh, you know there's no no better place to work than the energy transition, but uh, things like the the social license skills and supply chains challenges that everyone's seeing, you know, those will all play out in Western Australia too. So that's something we're actively planning for. Okay. Well, look, um, Joe, look, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. And look, uh, we wish you luck, um, um, particularly in, in the next few weekends over spring. <laughs> um, <laughs> we shouldn't sure. laugh, though. No, we shouldn't <laughs> laugh. Um, um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I had a had a full head of hair when I started this job, Giles, and now I'm as bald as you are. But, um, you know, 
<laughs> no, not really. I'll, that's not I'll a bad thing, you know. That's not, a, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. We'll look. Um, we'll look forward to sort of getting an update um, sometime um, down the track and um, and see how you're going. Look, thank you very much for um, joining Energy Insiders. Uh, thanks for having me. Look, we'll take a short break and uh, we'll be back um, in, a, in a minute or so or in a few moments um, with my co-host David Leach. Australia's most anticipated clean energy event, All Energy Australia, returns to the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre October 25 and 26. This event is a must for industry suppliers and experts and those involved in the renewable energy and energy storage sectors featuring over 350 suppliers and attracting more than 10,000 industry professionals. You can't miss this free event. Register now for All Energy Australia 2023, October 25 and 26, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. You're back with the Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, my name is Giles Parkinson. Uh, we've been listening to Jai Thomas, the coordinator of energy in Western Australia, and it's my great pleasure to welcome to this episode of David Leach, the ITK principal. Um, David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well and uh, a great interview and there's, as usual, quite a bit going on. Look, there is going to, um, something going on, uh, a lot going on, sorry, in Western Australia. Um, look, apart from just the sort of the scale and the pace of what they are doing and sort of, you know, this sort of whole thinking about moving from baseload to sort of, you know, renewables and firming or, disp you know, uh, flexible uh, generation, however you want to describe it, what's really interesting is their ability to make their own decisions, change the market rules, keep a coal-fired power station on, say that we need 50 gigawatts of new wind and solar and kind of sit out a plan to get it done, um, possibly because they don't have that multitude of regulatory and rulemaking bodies sitting above them. Uh, yes, the regulatory rulemaking bodies uh, don't sit above them, but they still have to earn social licence uh, from the community. Uh, um, and I guess they still have to do planning and there's still in, probably there's less, West Australia is a small state in electricity terms relative to the NEM. Um, and I look, it's hard to understand what their issues are versus those in New South Wales or Queensland, but over here we have a planning system uh, which more and more I think is seen to not being up to the job of the transition of this scale. No, that's right. I guess we're sort of talking about sort of two sort of um, very much linked things. I mean, one is kind of, you know, I mean, we've just seen the problems in the in, in the main grid, just about sort of getting the rule changes and sort of, you know, I think we've been talking for many, many years now that the rules are not fit for purpose, but they're still struggling to get changed, um, you know, sort of incremental change. Um, so it's kind of interesting what the um, WA government is sort of thinking, its ability to sort of, you know, make sort of quite... Um, sizable change reasonably quickly but um, but the issues you have um, you're pointing out here about social license I mean that of course applies to Western Australia and I think that was one of the things that Jai was talking about and particularly with Aboriginal um, landowners but also the community in transmission links and easements and things like that but um, the issues here about social license have definitely become more mainstream haven't they David? Uh, they have. I, I see reports on the news regularly. And anyway, it's certainly something uh, we'll be covering. I think what's emerged from the review that the government held uh, uh, was one of the things that Energy Co just hasn't been uh, staffed properly uh, and wasn't an organisation that, that's really been uh, big enough or fit enough for its task. I've been hearing other reports like, uh, you know, they don't like not really ready to respond to correspondence from individual uh, landowners that are fed back to them, whereas government departments are normally or historically those that are very good at that kind of thing. But overall, I think it's the planning department uh, and, and the coordination of the New South Wales government uh, with the planning department. And I have no doubt that Queensland is looking at what's going on in New South Wales and coming along behind and trying to see how can we uh, uh, make it work in Queensland. Uh, um, also, given that Queensland's coming up for a state election where uh, which is pretty important, and we are not really clear what the opposition plans are, but they're unlikely to be as uh, progressive as the current government in Queensland's plans. So there's a, a lot going on there. Uh, and then. Yes. Well, that's right. Yes. Well, I think the um, the Queensland opposition's plans basically begin with the letter N and end with the uh, sound R. But um, anyway. Um, well, <laughs> 
Um, going back to um, going back to New South Wales, David. Um, I mean, look, a lot of the debate is sort of centred around the Arara enclosure, and one of the things about Arara, which is owned by Origin, is that it's generally assumed it's going to be owned by someone different um, sometime in the new year. Brookfield, exactly. Um, Brookfield, for those that don't know, is a very large, uh, very large global scale uh, Canadian uh, pension fund group. In the first instance, um, and so they've. Yes, sorry, we're talking, um, they've come in with an $18.7 billion bid with Mid-Ocean. Mid-Ocean would take the energy assets. Brookfield wanted to take the um, origin assets, run the utilities. They've announced big plans to sort of accelerate the rollout of wind, solar and storage, which is which is great. Um, see how that operates. But they may be running into problems um, with the regulators, with the ACCC and, and, and things like that, mainly over the, the question of their ownership of um, of Osnet and how that might be manage, managed, which is like, you know, the, we don't not often have in, in Australia sort of, you know, this sort of joint ownership or ownership of sort of both generating companies and transmission. That's kind of been ring-fenced, hasn't it? Uh, yes, it has. And the um, Brookfield has gone down the uh, route of uh, looking for uh, a, a, an approved uh, takeover. I haven't put it in the proper uh, legal terms. Uh, Scheme from, of arrangement. Yes, from the ACCC. And I've been looking at some of the correspondence that the ACCC has put up there, and they've uh, recently issued their concerns about the bid. And they fall into two groups. Uh, one of them is that would Brookfield really do uh, a better job because it owned origin of building new renewables? Or the way they put it, I think, is is there any advantage in uh, having a retail customer base or, or a customer load in building renewables? To me, the, uh, and, the, and the ACCC have uh, commissioned a report from uh, uh, Frontier Economics that says that uh, uh, no, there's no real advantage because all you need is government policy, uh, which I think myself personally is a completely ridiculous point of view to take uh, <laughs> because it's quite obvious that policy's not working and individual actors make a big difference. And indeed, it's been uh, found that uh, vertically integrated gentailers uh, uh, do things better in, in some ways than, than completely separate gen generator and retail. But leaving that aside, I think where the ACCC has... Uh, made some uh, important uh, uh, findings um, that are agreed now by Brookfield is that Brookfield had a person stationed uh, working at Osnet uh, that was seeing all the projects that were coming through from developers. Um, and, and, you know, that's not the appropriate level of ring fencing or Chinese walls. Brookfield shouldn't be able to see that. Now, it's, I think that Brookfield could put in place arrangements and perhaps satisfy the ACCC or if it goes further and goes to a court case at the Australian Competition Tribunal that says that in the future uh, uh, we can change that and it will be completely ring-fenced. Uh, that may, uh, may be a very open line and I'm certainly not a lawyer, um, but uh, where I think the ACCC is going to be... Um, has even further force is is that my understanding is that this what Brookfield has now admitted is the case that they had someone there is not what they initially uh, tried to put to the ACCC uh, and therefore there's level of trust <laughs> if there ever is any between uh, between the two parties is maybe not as high as it used to be. Interesting stuff, and um, I'm not too sure when the, we expect a decision on that. Um, no doubt there's going to be further correspondence um, between the two parties, but um, I think it is by the end of the year that uh, we expect some sort of... I think it'll be a lot quicker than that myself. Okay, okay. Well, there you go. Um, we'll watch that one with interest. Um, a few other things going on this week. Um, we have a, 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 a big new potential investor in Australian renewables. Uh, as, as we've said before, Giles, uh, uh, there's never, no shortage of people who want to do it. There's no shortage of capital. There's no, not even that big a shortage. Solar panels coming out of our, our I should use a rude word, but there's plenty of solar panels around the place. <laughs> And you could probably even get a, a few wind turbines. But what you can't get is people to people all lined up to let it happen. 
Yeah, well, that's right. Or your project approvals, or sort of transmission built, or whatever. Um, so this was Gentari, which is part of Petronas, which is the Malaysian oil giant, um, talking about um, sort of building between five and eight gigawatts. They took over Versol or Versol um, Energy, um, which has been a reasonably successful sort of solar and battery storage developer in Australia. So Greenfields and Brownfields project, um, interesting. Um, look, another couple of things before we wind up, um, David. Um, just sort of confirmation this week, just about the cost reductions, um, both in batteries but also with um, solar panels down now the cost of solar um, just sort of falling dramatically mostly because of sort of surplus um, Chinese production uh, China is putting a lot of solar into its own um, grid the estimates this week from uh, Rystad Energy that um, they're going to have 500 gigawatts by the end of the year and a, and a whole terawatt and double that in the next three years um, but the sheer scale of production that they're um, doing is, is sending sort of the, the cost of modules down to never seen before levels, which is great, uh, makes it very hard for um, other countries seeking to manufacture solar. But um, um, but we, we uh, can't uh, complain about that. I, I I absolutely you know bad luck for other countries if China wants to produce all these modules. I mean that's competition, isn't it, Giles? I mean there's no law that says that just because you make a module, you're entitled to make a profit out of it. No, 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 I don't think I was complaining, but I would observe that Australia does have ambitions to try set up its own Yes, but they're stupid uh, ambitions, as I said from the, have said all along. <laughs> I mean, it's, they are, really. I mean, it's fine, you know what I mean? If you want a custom-built uh, uh, little piece uh, made in Australia with a nice stamp on it uh, and, the, and the maker's name, that's fine. If you want a low-cost thing that's going to work and help you get your solar project uh, over the line, and modules, unfortunately, are not the only part of the cost. We've also had a fall in... Uh, a uh, dollar, which has increased costs. We've got labor, higher labor rates and everything. So I, I do agree with you that solar costs uh, probably, I, I don't exactly know where EPC contracts are, but, but uh, you know, if you want to make the EPC operator um, wrap in the connection agreement and everything, then they're going to charge for that, you know, and connection still remains a, a, a bit of an issue. And I think myself, as I said before, that I don't even think wind costs are going up onshore wind uh, and stuff. If uh, if you do it right, uh, what we have to do is just get the supply chain working properly for our advantage, so that so that the manufacturers can see uh, a steady stream of orders and a steady growth of business. And I think and, you know the labour force can see that the demand will be there, and the, so we can put the training programs in for the skilled engineers and other skills that we need. And that's the way we all want to do it. It's just, can we actually achieve it? Mm. Okay. Well, look, I think that's probably a good place to end up, David. Look, um, thank you very much um, for joining us. Um, thank you very much to Jai Thomas um, from the WA uh, government, um, to the, the coordinator of energy in that state uh, for joining us. A fascinating interview. Um, and thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of Energy Insiders next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.